Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC pod? Today, we're joined by Courtney Klein, who's the co-founder of Stork. So Courtney, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about the brand that you've built with Stork, the products you type of offer, the products that you offer, um, and all about the business that you're building. Sure. So I am the co-founder of Stork, as you mentioned, and we sell uh, maternity, nursing, and parenthood apparel and accessories. Cool. So um, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit more about um, you know, when you, when you guys started the brand, uh, a little bit of the inspiration, um, behind the brand, what gave you conviction that this was an opportunity that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, sure. So my background is actually in digital strategy. So I was a partner at a digital design agency in New York and needed to move West. And when I got out here, I thought I would stay in client services, but very quickly realized that it was a great opportunity for me to start doing something completely different and, as part of that strategy background, ethnography was always a big part of my work. And so, you know, I also happened to be at that age where a lot of friends and family were starting to have babies to talk about parenthood. Um, and, you know, I kept hearing this refrain over and over again from people, which was, there's nothing in this space that speaks to me. And I didn't have any children at the time. Now I have two, but uh, I was kind of going into it blind, and as I started digging and looking at the statistics and the demographics, it was really fascinating. So, you know, more children are being born, and again, if you live in an urban area, this won't surprise you, but more children are being born to women over 30 than ever before in American history. When women uh, give birth later and stay in the workforce longer, they have more money to spend because their incomes are, are usually higher. And so, you know, also they have different needs when you're having a baby in your 30s and you're established and you're in the workforce when you're younger in your 20s. Those are totally different needs. So as we started digging into it, um, I realized there was a real market opportunity to address what we now call millennials, <laughs> but the millennial parents and looking at, you know, what kind of things they cared about when it came to the clothing that they wore and the apparel that they used and, you know, now that I have children, I think a lot of this is borne out, which is, you know, as soon as you become pregnant, um, the things, you know, it's like this monumental shift. It's a super exciting time, but it's also a time when your entire identity changes. And what was out there in the market was largely cheap mass market and kind of assumed that when you became pregnant, you were this like sunny, happy, shiny, glowing person. And that wasn't the narrative that everyone was experiencing. So, you know, my partner and I, Grace, we sort of did, you know, we scanned all sorts of moms groups. We recruited ladies to talk to, people to talk to who were pregnant um, and just said, like, what are your pain points with the clothing that you're wearing? Like, how does this category make you feel? 
Like what could be better about this? What are the key items that you're missing from your closet that you wish you had? And that was kind of the the very beginning seed of the company was, okay, we're going to start this company that helps pregnant people and parents maintain their identity and style. Um, and so from there, we created this four these four pieces, which were the capsule collection. And we had this idea that these are the four only four things you really need in your closet when you are pregnant. Uh, and that was a tank top, a pair of leggings, a skirt, and a pair of leggings, tape, and a skirt. Oh my gosh, why am I not? <laughs> and a dress. <laughs> I'm like, I know why. I know why, because there's a product change that's happening. <laughs> I've already moved beyond, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, so those four products, that was 2014 when we launched. We still sell those four products, and those four products still make up the bulk of our business today. And so, you know, unlike a lot of companies that are, are seasonal, we really strive to be seasonless. And so, you know, we put out into the market like, okay, here are the four things. We're going to get really good at selling these four things. And that's what we did for the first three years of the business was just get really good at selling pregnant people those four things. And then from there, we expanded the product line once we got good at selling those things. Yeah, what I really like about uh, how you mentioned coming from a strategy background is A, how you invested uh, in the market and said, hey, there's this opportunity that we're seeing that the market the, there's a market need for. Uh, and then when you actually started to go to market, you didn't go crazy and try to build out the whole closet. You were, you were able to say, if we develop these four products, these are going to deliver the maximum value and solve, you know, 80% of the problem that the people who are having this problem have, right? So I think being able to approach it from a macro perspective and then be really decisive in the products that you want to go after is really important when launching because you have limited resources and time, exactly. et cetera, right? So why don't you walk us through a little bit about having made up that decision, you've done the market research, you've started to interview uh, mothers, look, picking apart their pain points, you decide that you've done the research and said, here are the four products that we believe are going to satisfy a big portion of this market. What are the next steps in taking that to market? What was it like working with your suppliers to come up with the right product? How did you decide those were the ones that you were ready to ship? And what type of um, initial investment did you make to be able to get the business up and running? Yeah, I mean, I think those four pieces were driven, like you said, from a strategy perspective, but also a limited resources. So, you know, we simply didn't have the cash on hand or the expertise. Like my background, as I said, is in digital strategy. My co-founder, she was from the fashion world, but more the editorial fashion world and has like an incredible fashion sense, but she had never been the person responsible for the actual like production of garments and neither had I. And so we were both going into it very green and I could fill a giant book of all the things I didn't know about making physical things. Um, and there was definitely some ego that if I had to look back at that, I we made a lot of mistakes um, because we just simply didn't know. Um, so from once we um, had those four pieces, what we did to kind of shortcut the process, because also a lot of vendors didn't want to work with us because the order quantities we were putting in were very small in terms of you know the life cycle of manufacturing which are you know huge a lot of you know garments are made in the thousands and hundreds of thousands and we were asking for hundreds um and so what we did to kind of shortcut things is we went to a maternity showroom and we found a brand that had a fabric that was similar to what we thought we wanted to use so again in doing our research around fabrics 
we settled on Modal because it's really stretchy, it's pretty versatile, it works in warmer weather, works in cooler weather. And so we went to this maternity showroom and we basically approached one of the brands to do private label for us. So that brand that was already working in a fabric we wanted to work in and already making maternity clothes, we said, hey, any chance you're willing to like add some of our stuff into that? And it was an interesting relationship and it did help us fast forward because they kind of already knew the maternity silhouettes and customer and the fitting and and it worked out until it didn't, until, you know, that became instead of a friendly relationship, it became more of a competitive relationship. But I'd say for the first year, it was something that allowed us to get started up a lot quicker. And and that's likely going to, to happen when you start working with a partner, like the first partner that you work with might not necessarily be the same partner that is going to help you go from 10,000 to 100,000 units. Um, so it, it's all about, you know, what is the first milestone we're trying to get to in terms of production to prove this out. So I have a few questions. When you mentioned showroom, is that a trade show that you go to for, you know, yeah. It's like in the garment district. I don't know if you've ever been to the garment district in New York, but in the garment district, there are all these sort of like specialty, like retailers and wholesalers and all sorts of different categories. And so we kind of just honestly put into Google, like maternity showroom, like who's selling maternity wholesaler, maternity modal to see if we could just find somebody, anybody to help us bring these initial garments to life. And, you know, they would make them they'd ship them to me in San Francisco. I would care. I would take all of the garments in my car, get them screen printed in San Francisco, bring them back to like our office in San Francisco, fold them all myself. Like that was definitely the beginning was very like manual uh, in terms of what we did. And then compared to now where we make 90% of our garments overseas and you know, the, the process is obviously a lot different managing, you know, hundred pieces and taking them to uh to screen print by myself and then yeah. yeah and I also did fulfillment like by myself I had like a task rabbit that would come help me twice yeah. a week to do fulfillment to now you know we make most everything overseas we have a 3PL in South Dakota that does all our fulfillment uh and that's you know but that took time yeah I mean and so what was the timeline in that process from like you know initially doing the research of these showrooms to saying, okay, we found the person that's going to do it for us. That was probably six months of, you know, figuring out these are the garments. Okay, this is the fabric. Now let's search and let's see who we can convince to make them. How long is it going to take them to make? How many do we have to order initially? You know, because we also, we've not, we haven't raised um, any traditional venture capital. So we have had like a friends and family angel round that we use because, you know, retail is capital intensive. And so we went out to, you know, some people and said, hey, we're starting this business. We need some money just to be able to buy the initial um, the initial inventory. And so we were definitely and, you know, at, now I'm very thankful for it because we've had to m create a business that works with revenue and cash flow. And like we don't have you know, we've been very focused as a result on our customer instead of our investors. And, you know, I don't think that works for every business, but it's definitely worked for ours and taking that path. Yeah. One concept that 
you know, Ramon and I talk about a lot is building businesses sustainably. Every business mm -hmm. kind of have, has its own trajectory and pace. There's certain businesses where venture is the right model because you're trying to dominate a market. And there's other businesses where there's room for multiple players. It can generate a ton of cash flow and it can be sustainable. And when you build things the right way, a lot of times the growth can just compound on top of that the right way. So um, I'm really interested to kind of pick into uh, because obviously, if you're entering the apparel space, right, and you're trying to start a business today, uh, venture may not be the best bet, although what you had mentioned in terms of it being capital intensive, it is true, right? So why don't you walk us through generating those first sales? Uh, you've gone, you've made, you've said, okay, we're going for this business. We've, we found our supplier, we're generating a couple units. I love the hack, by the way, of like finding a different manufacturer who's like already doing something simple and you say, hey, let's just private label a small run. Um, so you've got your batch, you, you have it at your apartment, you start getting ready to or get some orders out. How, tell us a little bit about the first sales you generated. Did you immediately go to Facebook to try to, you know, just run ads and drive your first sales? Were you going into communities? Were you going to friends? Like, where did you go to get your first call at 100 plus sales? Yeah, so I'd say that you know, we actually didn't do any paid advertising until three, maybe four years into the business, not because we were like shunning it, but because we honestly just didn't know how to do it. Uh, we didn't have the money to hire someone at that point to manage that process. Um, now, you know, that's run by an agency in conjunction with our marketing director. But so at the very beginning, you know, we called in a lot of favors from friends and family. And so, you know, I, as in my background, um, as I mentioned, I worked with a lot of media companies. Uh, so I worked with Condé Nast, I worked with the New York Times. Um, and so I like had a little bit of a Rolodex of people who were in media, I used to share an office with curbed racked eater. And I, you know, messaged everyone I knew and just said, Hey, I launched this business. Can I, you know, is there any chance that you would just give me a mention in some capacity? And some people said yes, and some people said no. And then, you know, pounding the pavement with mom's groups, with anybody we knew who was a parent, hey, pass this on. Oh, are you pregnant? Like, here, try us out. And it was very manual. But the other kind of flip side to when you're working in the motherhood and, and maternity space is, or the parenthood space, it's a very heavy word of mouth space. So if you please, you know, it's interesting because they say in like marketing, there are certain uh, categories where if you make a relationship with someone, it's extremely powerful. And it's like, if you make a relationship with a bride, then that's like a relationship that lasts kind of forever. And, and it's very similar in motherhood. If you can please a parent uh, and give someone a great experience during maternity, then they're usually gonna, somebody's gonna say, hey, I just got pregnant where do I shop for maternity? And so we really, our first sales were, were all driven by word of mouth and then kind of like calling in favors. Hey, like our Facebook page, follow our Instagram. Um, and then very quickly we learned the other piece and this piece still continues to be one of our top performing channels, which is affiliate and influencer. So, you know, this was a time as I was mentioning uh, the, the their chronological feed was still in existence in Instagram. And so we were just sending out freebies to like any, you know, influencer that we thought would might gel with our audience. And it was actually a lot easier. And I think a little bit more wild, wild west back then. It wasn't like you were even necessarily paying people. Now you are, you know, there's just a lot of changes in that industry as well. But we were like mailing out free product all the time. Hey, wear this, try this, tell us what you think. 
et cetera, to get those first sales. So when you were doing that strategy of affiliate and influencer, you also mentioned then that the paid marketing one, it seems like it was put on hold because, hey, this requires probably a different kind of setup that we don't have experience with, but influencer and affiliate is working for us. Let's just double down on this. This exactly. can get us from point A to point B. And then, you know, it's not just hiring the ads person, it's implementing the strategy and having someone that can oversee it that has the experience, which is likely the marketing director. So is that right? Was affiliate and influencer the strategy from zero to one um, until you evolved? Yeah. To paid marketing? Yeah. I'd say like we knew how to email people. <laughs> <laughs> we knew how to use Instagram. We knew how to, you know, try to promote ourselves. We knew how to create like a share a sale link to try and get, you know, people to talk about us because yeah. they get some kind of like all of those things felt very achievable with limited knowledge. Uh, whereas like you're saying, like, I don't even think we had enough creative from our photo shoots to like run advertising that would have necessarily been compelling at that point. And so I think for us, we picked, you know, my co-founder, she's like, an amazing writer. And so we're like, all right, we think we can catch people's attention through like really fun kind of, you know, now it's interesting as the maternity space has evolved, a lot of it feels very normalized. But when we were first starting doing this, a lot of the ways that we were talking to pregnant people felt like, ooh, like that's kind of like interesting. And so we kind of played with copy and we tried to put ourselves out there as different compared to what, you know, the kind of bigger players in the space um, that were dominating the space. Because I think one of the things when you become pregnant is it's all about the baby and people almost start infantilizing you. It's like, oh, what are you sure that that's okay for the baby? Are you sure that, you know, and so what we set out to do is, and even this does pervade the space now, but there was a lot of like, hey, mama, you got this mama. I know you haven't been sleeping for two weeks, but like we have your back and it's like really patronizing. And so one of the things that we like jokingly said at the beginning and we still stamp, you know, pregnant people are people like you're, you're just a person. You just happen to be having a child and, or have a baby. Like you still like the same things. Yes. You've gone through a transformational experience, but like in fundamentally you are you and you like the same things and you, you know, your life is still your own. And that felt really different than the way a lot of people were talking to pregnant people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what I love about what you guys did is that you decided to go deep instead of wide, right? Because you could still say, hey, influencer um, and affiliate is working. Let's still try to hack and like figure out ads. But you basically were able to see the timeline from a 30,000 foot view and say, we can go much deeper with influencer and affiliate. We can pay it. We can pay attention to little details in the copy that our competitors are too big and too busy. And so sort of like, um, you know, that's sort of like the, the Trojan horse for you guys to make your way into the market and resonate with, um, you know, your, your audience of those moms. So, one thing I think would be valuable for for brands that are sort of getting started out is like, what then was your step to fire um to hiring your first director of marketing? Like, what did you look for there? Were there any mistakes made um when trying to run ads initially? AKA, you know, if you were to go back and and have to hire your first director of marketing, how would you do it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. The first thing we did is we started with an agency that kind of managed minimal spend. Like we still weren't ready to hire that marketing person. I was kind of pinch hitting as our marketer uh, and kind of working with the agency on like a small retainer to just kind of do table stakes ads. And I think the interesting thing and, and something that was hard for me because I'm all about brand. Like that is that is the thing I love. That's the thing I feel comfortable with. That's the thing I'm always going to defend. It's like my my space. And working with a, the agency in the beginning, they were like, we need to be direct and we need to say like, buy stuff. And I was like, oh, that feels too salesy. Like, I don't like this. This is bad. And I think if I could go back again, <laughs> like in time, I would have been like, just be salesy. Like people, you need to sell the things. Like, don't be so precious. We were so precious for so long. Like we would only send one email a week for like the first like five years of the business. Now we send an email like every other day because people just need to see you a lot of times and you need to try to sell your things. And I think it's something that we still sometimes are a little too precious about, but I think I would go back and I would say to myself, like, just listen to this agency and say, like, buy this now or like sale. Like we didn't do a sale. And even now we're very limited on sales, but I would have done like 10% off for new customers. And at the time we were just like, whoa, this is like too much for us. Like we're above this. We're better than this. But honestly, we're running a retail business. We need to sell things. Uh, and that took longer than it should have, I think, to sink in. And I would I would definitely uh, take that advice a lot sooner. Yeah, that's so fascinating, especially when you think about brand versus, um, you know, contact and performance. I think it's what's so funny. Consumers are so overwhelmed today with the amount of stimulus and inputs from across all these different platforms that you're almost sitting at from your seat in the brand. You're like, oh, my God, like, you know, they're going to think this or they're going to think that. And a lot of times, unless it's totally egregious, like, you know, you're not even like, registering on their, their radar it. right like it's like okay like okay yeah i got a notification okay just like a mil yeah i did Scroll. from a million other brands exactly so just um i think that is a really good tip in terms of um for uh, you know operators and founders who are just starting out like yes brand is imp is very important it's critical it is the lifeblood that keeps everything together but at the end of the day you need to sell you need volume you need um and you need to like put yourself out there and give give the consumers the right CTAs because like you can't, you can't assume that they're going to be able to read between the lines. Right. Yeah. And I think like we, one of the things is I think it we've learned now that we can be, you know, we have an overarching like brand that was very clearly defined, but how that brand expresses itself in different channels, it doesn't have to match one-to-one -one. like what somebody sees on Facebook. They may never see anything like that on our website. And that's like, you know, the place you go for the hollowed brand. But like in Facebook, you need a different strategy because like you said, people are scrolling by a zillion things and what is going to be clear and actionable. And, you know, now we have a lot of data around what works there. And so that's obviously evolved over time. But like that is a very different vibe and product than what you might find on our website. Like on Facebook, we've found that women or pregnant people who are three quarters turned perform outperform anything else on Facebook. And so every single image almost that you see or ad from us on Facebook will be a pregnant person turned three quarters so that you can see it's for whatever reason that silhouette performs the best. Now on our website, are you going to see that many three quarter 
silhouette pregnant people? No, like that would be insane. But on Facebook, we know that that's what works. We know that everybody buys black in terms of that's what drives sales volume. Black does not perform in any of our Facebook ads. So you will see color in every single Facebook ad. Like there's, the brand is just different in different places. Uh, and that is, that took us a while to kind of internalize and then learn to work with that. So how did you then scale the affiliate and um, an influencer side when you brought in the director of marketing? How did you hand off the strategy that you had already proven? Um, and then from, you know, as a leader, from a managerial perspective, like, how, how, how did that transition work and, and what made it work? Is it still something you guys do today? Like yeah. affiliate? Yeah. And I think that affiliate and influencer, that's still like one of our most productive channels. And if anything, you know, bringing in a director of marketing just made that channel uh, more professional, I guess I should say. Um, you know, we now use uh, a, a bunch of different tools that help us essentially build our own affiliate program. and we. You know, we do a bunch of things like every month we send out an affiliate email and we say, hey, everybody that we've worked with this month, we're promoting leggings. If you want some leggings, let us know. Like, we're here for you. Don't forget your affiliate code. Oh, also for September, we're going to bump it from 10 to 15 percent. Like we have uh, a bunch of things like that in the affiliate world that are more professional or, you know, and I think affiliate or influencer affiliate are very closely aligned for us. I know they aren't for every company. Um, but for us, they're very closely intertwined. Um, but, you know, we do things like, and I think the influencer just sphere is moving more towards us where instead of doing a one-off project with someone, we may find them early in their pregnancy and we'll say, hey, we want to do like four things before, you know, you have a, a baby. And we are engaging people on a longer, instead of just like a one-off, can we send you a free pair of leggings? It's like the asks are more concrete the compensation is different. And then we have really deep, lovely relationships with the people that we work there. And it's something that has continued to work for us. And I think, again, it goes back to the idea of mother or parenthood being so word of mouth focused that, you know, when you work with an influencer around this time in someone's life, I think those recommendations come across pretty strongly. So that does work for us. And, you know, given the Apple privacy changes, which has really impacted our paid and our ability to target and also to just see where that money is going. We have doubled down on affiliate, uh, influencer, email, uh, SMS has been something that we've been, you know, introduced, I think the beginning of this year, and that's been really good for us. So like for us, our own channels are all, like we're putting a lot more energy into our own channels and the paid channels are becoming secondary which i think there was a time when that was flipped uh and we were just like it was cheap and easy to find people on paid and so we were doing a, a lot of it and now we're looking you know we're exploring podcasts i'm trying to think of all the kind of other things and i think a lot of brands are given just how that land the paid landscape has changed and even the you know the number of people trying to reach the same people you're trying to reach. It didn't, there didn't used to be so many people fighting for the same keywords and now it's crowded. 
So what, what were some of the instrumental tools for you to scale those systems? Like whether it was, you know, internal processes using Notion, Airtable, spreadsheets, or was it specific platforms that allow you to scale, you know, hey, we, we need systems to know that every month, here's what's going to be the offer this month, next month, managing the community, where does communication happen? Like what were the instrumental pieces? Yeah, there? so we used to use a Google spreadsheet, which I think was fine when it was small. Uh, but now we've switched, you know, we're, we're super Asana heavy company. Asana is like, everything lives in the Asana. If it's not, if it's not in the Asana, then I'm not doing it. No one else is doing it either. <laughs> it's as if it does not exist. Um, so we, well, there's a lot in the Asana. And then, uh, last year we switched to using a tool called Grin, G-R-I-N. Uh, and it's an influencer management software that has been really great for us because it allows us to keep everybody organized. And, you know, one thing that's different about us than other companies is that our people are constantly cycling in and out. So we may have an influencer who we love working with. They're only going to have one child and we caught them with three months before they're having a baby. So like we have that person for three months, we'll keep them in the system and maybe they'll come back, change your mind but we've got to constantly be cycling in and out. And I think that creates a lot of uh, challenges in terms of managing that pool of people and taking people in and taking people out. Uh, and we, we constantly have to be finding new people. Um, and so for us leveling up to using an actual like CRM for our influencers was important. Yeah, I think it's what's really interesting about your your specific market that you're going after is that there, there's almost like an expiration date, so to speak, in terms of like when that marketing messaging can speak to uh, a potential buyer. Um, so really being specific, and I think that goes to your point, like when you're running a, uh, an ad, for example, on social, probably the reason that it performs so well is when like you need an ad that like immediately tells the the potential buyer that like, hey, I'm speaking to you, like with, through the lens of, um, you know, at like the three quarter tilt uh, pregnant woman with the belly bump, right? Like that is gonna scream, hey, this is for you. Um, and if you're subtle about it, you're gonna miss that that window because it's such a short um, and specific window. And then I think it's also really interesting thinking about on the even the influencer side of things and the affiliate side, like sometimes there's gonna be people and groups that you can rely on that are like, you know, uh, gonna be around for a while and are, are really, always going to be evergreen for you guys. Whereas there's going to be others that are like you're saying, you're trying to time it again and again and again, you might be like, Oh my God, like this new influencer is going to have a baby. Now let's get this partnership moving. And they have, I'm sure a million different things going on yeah, in their totally. life and everything's changing, changing too. Um, yeah. This is so, obviously not the most important thing that's happening <laughs> in their life. So, so one question that I have in the lens of like talking about how, you know, they're, it's not as easy anymore of just simply like selecting, I'm looking for, um, you know, pregnant women on Facebook and running an ad that way. And uh, knowing that how important and impactful your influencer and affiliate channels are, I'm wondering how you guys um, think about attribution on that side of things, right? Because yes, there's going to be there's always going to be the side where we're able to quantify how many promo codes are entered. But I'm guessing that when you're dealing with a longer form engagement, not every 
purchase, not every conversion, not every word of mouth referral is going to result in an actual attribution in terms of a referral code. Uh, so how do you guys think about it? Is it just part of your strategy to expect there might be some breakage on that end and saying that that's an arbitrage opportunity for us? Or what's your what's your approach to attribution and influence? Yeah, At attribution is obviously challenging for us because we we and it's only become more challenging over the last year because people may see an ad or a pinterest ad or a facebook ad and we can't really the attribution for that is really challenging as well and then obviously influencer they may see something and they may use the influencers affiliate code or promo code and like that makes it very easy but you know we've had a lot of breakage there where um you know somebody makes we make an affiliate code for an influencer and then it ends up on honey and then it looks like that influencer is amazing. <laughs> but then we find out, you know, a week later, oh, someone uploaded this code. That is totally, you know, irrelevant. We don't actually know how this influencer performs. And so that is something that we struggle with to like figure out exactly who's doing what and what's coming from where. Um, the best, like our best influencers, as crazy as it sounds, our best influencers, they have a direct product tie. So like we have an influencer that we work with literally every time she's, she loves this one product that we sell that is not like one of our top sellers. So it's, it's very strange to see it come up in the top 10. We can link whenever she talks about it with a spike in sales of that product because she's pretty much the only person who like repeatedly talks about it and every time you see it you're like oh did she talk about the, the button up today <laughs> she did uh but most of the time it's not that clear and i think we've we still struggle to figure out you know where did this customer come from how can we re-engage them like it's something that we haven't cracked i would say if i was honest yeah and, and i don't think it necessarily will ever be cracked totally um and i think that maybe the takeaway here is the fact that because it was a channel that you relied on from the beginning and used to like leverage your growth and it was something that has been part of like a growing business sort of strategy and it continues to work because I think the real appeal in terms of influencers, especially ones that are being authentic in terms of sharing your story over the course of many, many engagements is it just becomes part like people are kind of like we're saying they're subtly consuming the information it's like real brand marketing at work as opposed to performance but then all of a sudden you know that person who's been watching this influencer time after time after time they might be like oh wait a minute i know this person's always been talking about you know stork when when they were pregnant now i'm pregnant and here like this is where i'm gonna go shop so um i think in terms of a brand marketing it's it's a real um, real advantage to be able to lean in on that when other brands might who are strictly performance and metrics driven and will only invest in what they can get pure attribution for. Um, yeah. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a way to really stand out. It's also interesting because I think there's been, you know, we obviously have had to start investing more in TikTok and learning that environment versus Instagram and just how you know, our affiliates and our influencers are uh, in TikTok is completely different. Like, it's kind of amazing learning about this. Like with Instagram, I think it used to be like, I love Stork. Stork is amazing. These are the most soft, amazing leggings I've ever had. And it's like one beautiful post. And with TikTok, what we found is most of the people we work with on TikTok, they don't even ever mention us. They are just creating like 10 pieces of content a day. And they happen to be wearing like our nursing bra in all 10 of those pieces and 
in every TikTok, someone will say like, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? But they know it's not like that clear, like, hi, I'm here to tell you about Stork. It's like this off the cuff. It's just in the background and someone is subtly seeing this bra over and over and over again. Um, and then they want to know what it is because I think that's another interesting thing about this business is we have to catch somebody at the right, the exact right moment. And that's really hard. And so, you know, this is a double-edged sword because we always get new people who find themselves pregnant and find our brand, but then we're always losing people. And so it's a bit of a hamster wheel. And so thinking about, you know, we, we may have caught someone like in some of our like media or like traditional PR and they may have seen some like article and they're like oh that's cool but like I'm not having a baby and like it just there's no interest if somebody is not in this life stage there's I have a lot of theories about why this is if someone's not in this life stage this content truly does not resonate it's not like other categories where you're dreaming of what your like maternity clothes are going to be or what diaper bag you're going to have like most people aren't you know, in the same way that like, maybe when you're like a teenager, you're thinking about your wedding, most most people aren't thinking in that same way and dreaming, you know, they may be dreaming of having a child, but they're probably not dreaming about what maternity clothes they're going to wear and the way that they might write something down uh, when they see it out of context. And so that's a huge challenge for us and something that we're always like working to figure out, you know, and it's, it's interesting because like, we may work with someone, we may be like, this person is not truly our style, but like, let's give it a go. And for whatever reason, they'll resonate and they will just have like a certain percentage of people who happen to be pregnant in their audience. And then there are other people who like we love and we think, oh my gosh, they're so stylish. They're amazing. But we get, you know, no pickup from the affiliate or the code because they are amazing, but their audience just may not be a match in this terms of this life cycle around having a baby or being postpartum. And I, I, I find that so interesting of like the experimentation of people that you think might not be the typical demographic you go after, because if you then are too targeted with that, there likely is crossover between the audiences of big influencers that target the same exact sort of aesthetic or style or audience or sense of humor. Um, whereas testing completely different people, you might be tapping into completely different audiences. Like for example, if you target, you know, to work with Jake Paul and Logan Paul, like chances are there's probably a lot of crossover um, between those. They're now kind of finally going <laughs> yeah. on doing their own thing. Separation. Them, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, and so, so how do you then view performance measurement on TikTok, I mean, then is it a no? Is it a is it a numbers game? Compared because I mean, a lot you know, this there's a lot of sort of metrics to measure when it comes to performance here. There's like there's like views on the videos, there's followers on the TikTok account, there's traffic on the website, there's conversions on the actual website. Um, and so like, what are the initial KPIs you're looking at there? Um, because some of them can be in Australia or like somewhere you don't ship, etc. It's also, you know, I think it's also really interesting because with Instagram, you kind of know what you're getting. And I'd say like, whereas TikTok, it feels like some person with 20 followers can have a, a video <laughs> that reaches a million people. And it's, it's just like, you don't know. And so evaluating, evaluating that, I feel like a lot of the things that we think about in performance marketing are being able to like evaluate somebody's reach or like, 
you know, would we work with this person? Oh, they only have 20 followers. It's like, now we're like, okay. Like, and I think, yeah, it's, it's really challenging to know who's going to drive, you know, there are people who obviously have a lot of followers across many platforms. You can assume that like those people will probably drive something. But I think the way that we're approaching TikTok, which is different than with some of the other people we work with is like, we just want on TikTok, everybody who is nursing to have a stork nursing bra, whether you have 20 followers or you have 20 million followers, like we want at least one of the videos where you're nursing your child to be in a stork bra. So like we are constantly trying to find, you know, and now obviously my TikTok just is all pregnant nursing ladies because that's what TikTok thinks I like. So it's somewhat easy for us to like start finding those people. But we are, you know, we, we have, we still have rigorous brand checks that are on the people we work with, but it's much more relaxed on TikTok because again, you don't know, what's going to hit or where that video is going to end up and what's going to end up driving traffic. Like there's another brand in our space who's done an amazing job on TikTok. And basically, similarly, they were like, we're just going to flood TikTok, this this niche of TikTok, nursing moms or like pregnant people. Uh, we're going to flood that with our product. And I, then that's a very different approach for us than we would normally take. Like we would be uh, we want the person to have between this and the, you know, followers, this much engagement, this is it. And right now, TikTok is very much the wild west for us, where we just want somebody who gets, who finds also themselves stuck in that flow of, because they're probably pregnant or nursing, they find themselves in that flow to, to see in the background. I keep seeing this bra. I keep seeing this bra. You know, we just released it. This is top of mind because we just released a pumping and nursing bra that's somewhat unique and so we're like okay we we want every time someone sees someone nursing on tiktok it's a stork product like how many of these can we send out and how many like you it's like we're just trying to be in the background of that like subtle like oh i keep seeing this product this must be good so many people are having it which is a very different approach i think than we've taken in the more curated land of what i'd say instagram tiktok still very much feels like a little like I don't <laughs> I think there's there's two really interesting things to unpack there. The first is in terms of uh, the strategy of just like being in the being in the content, right? Like it's almost like modern day product placement. Like typically before back in the day you'd be running product placements and trying to get your product onto the big screen. And whereas today you're like I'm focused on like organic native product placement so to speak. And then the other thing uh, that's like a big tailwind for in what you're tapping into in TikTok is the fact that it's no longer, I specifically need people with a big audience to be able to create in content. It's just, I need creators who are creating on TikTok because one could take off. And if it does, it's like almost like a venture capital sort of model where the ROI is still going to be just insane. And on TikTok, I'm sure, and TikTok, their kind of algorithm, the way it's worked is like, it's almost like this global talent show where they give everyone the notion that like everyone can go viral and you never know when it's going to be. And that kind of leads to people always creating content on the platform because they're like, this could be the TikTok that I create that like absolutely blows up and changes my life. Um, so I think that's very unique. And whereas Instagram, typically you would work for years, 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 build your audience, be very specific about here is what I'm showing you. This is how I feel about the brand, whereas TikTok, it's a little bit more like you're saying off the cuff. Yeah. And 
also the other thing about TikTok is I think because of their algorithm for better or for worse, you get in these like zones and there are these niches like that would be hard for us, I think, to discover or, or just simply aren't as powerful on Instagram. Like there's a niche of people who like show how much they pump after they pump breast milk. And it's like actually wildly popular. And like, those are the types of people who we want to like recruit and talk to because it's an extremely passionate audience. And we feel like there's overlap between this very passionate audience and our brand. And that's come to life in TikTok in a way like visually that it hasn't, uh, that, you know, it's not the same on Instagram. How do you drive something like that? Like, do you give, do you sort of theme campaigns based on, you know, like, you know, is, is this a specific theme that you send out to your ambassadors and then say, hey, whoever posts, here's your affiliate code or whatever. Um, is it more, you, hey, do do your creative thing or is it, here's an exact brief, how do you drive these campaigns? So we do, we have campaigns and then what we have, we have what we call evergreen or a, uh, like a f- affiliate, affiliation. So it would be like, women who love pumping and showing how much they've pumped, that's like a group that has a passion. Well, passion group, I forget what exactly we call them. But like, so we may say, okay, this month we're going after that group of passionate people. Like that's a project that we have a team executing. Then it might be, okay, we're launching a new product. Here's a campaign brief where we're going out. We're like, it's much more traditional. It's like, here's your campaign brief. We need three images, one video you need to say this about the product. You have to show it from two angles. That's another. And then another piece we have is like evergreen. So we have, you know, the four, we have much, a much bigger product assortment now, but like we still sell those four pieces that we started the business with. And we have to keep talking about those things, even though it feels like we've been talking about them forever because, you know, we have. Um, So we have a group of people, you know, we're always trying to find people in this kind of evergreen category to continue to promote those products that are kind of our, our biggest sellers. And so it kind of is buckets around, it buckets for us around like interests, if we're doing a launch campaign, and then the sort of like evergreen, hey, we know it's about to be legging season, let's make sure that we get X number of people wearing and or talking about leggings in the next month. And that is also like, you know, a difference between our business and other businesses is a lot of businesses, particularly in retail, are driven on newness. And we have a little bit of newness every quarter, but like we're not a newness driven business Uh, instead. And again, this probably comes from like a product background is like, I believe fundamentally we make the best pair of maternity leggings on the market because we've been making them since 2014. And at this point, we've tried them on hundreds of well, thousands, you know, if you consider our customers, and that's like, a great piece of D to C that we haven't talked about is like compared to a store where someone leaves with D to C, we're getting constant feedback through delighted through like sending out surveys through people writing us saying what they love and what they hate. We have so much product feedback that we can continue to iterate. And so we have, you know, this pair of leggings that at this point, I think is, like I said, the best pair of maternity leggings. The fabric is basically custom. The fit has been, you know, like honed in over years. And we have a lot of product like that. But we have to make sure that we talk about that because it's not the sexy, you e- shouldn't say easy, but like the sexy hit of like, spring collections here, it's new, buy it. Like, we're like, hi, it's us again. 
But on the flip side, like we talked about, we have we have a new audience. And like, that's the thing we have to remember as marketers and sometimes is challenging for our team is like, okay, I know we feel like we've been talking about leggings for the last eight years because we have, but guess what? The people we're talking about leggings to, they don't even, this is their first time interacting with leggings. And so we have a lot of like, email campaigns, influencer campaigns that are like, you know, the the email campaigns are like drip campaigns where we're just like, these are leggings. You're going to need a pair. Like, here's why they're great. And those are just like automatically, you know, sending to people when they place their first order around all of our hero products and whatnot. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I, I, I know we're coming up towards the end here, but I'm, I'm, uniquely passionate about this because this is this is what we do uh, at my main business trend so i deal with all kinds of brands brands that like don't want to give any directive um any creative direction at all and then i deal with brands that are giving you know word by word creative direction and it's tough because there are creators that prefer the instructions and not have to like then leave the brand unsatisfied um, and then have the brand more so give revisions after it's actually like live or something like that. But I've seen both work. You know, I've I've then seen creators that are like, let me do my thing. Brand gives no creative direction and boom, it just goes absolutely viral. So, um, you know, I think before we wrap up here, Blaine, I'll pass it over to you. But I do have one more question on this, which is um, one thing I've, you know, been sort of trying to understand more about is like, what is like why would i become a stork ambassador like what is your guys's why for becoming an ambassador i think that is like one of the most important elements that brands need to get right in like their ambassador programs because yes i understand i get ref share but based on tests i've seen some people aren't even driven by necessarily money some are driven by like being treated specialty uh, specially or like have a special product or like early access to products like what is storks why for joining as an ambassador yeah i'd say we have a very high touch relationship with everybody that we work with um it's not cookie cutter it's not and we put you know we have our team, there are dedicated people on our team to just, in, you know, to just interacting with influencers. And they're not even like executing campaigns. Their job is just to like message back and forth. And I think, you know, one benefit of being in the maternity and parenthood space is there aren't a lot of cool, hip, jazzy brands. And so a lot of times when people discover and and frankly, I think we make really great products and I think those stand on their own. And so when we can get someone, one of our products and they try one and they're like, oh, you're actually amazing. I actually would love this and I would use it even if you weren't paying me or even if you hadn't approached me like that piece. And then just keeping in contact, like we're just, it is just very high touch. And I say that's like the why is like, for a lot of the influencers, even me, myself, I don't even, you know, like, I'm not even in, like, I don't handle that. But like, I even have influencers that like, I still DM on Instagram, like, we've become friends, like, it is, it's, parenthood is such a transformational time, like I said, that I think these relationships become really tender and tight on both sides. Yes, we're just a brand. Yes, we're just selling apparel and accessories. But there is something about connecting with somebody else during that period. And if you can give them a really high touch, like I I found out that there was a form letter that was being sent on our behalf by like our affiliate marketing agency. And I was like, 
absolutely no. This is like cookie cutter. And the reason I found out is because one of our ambassadors was like, I got this email. I think you are being spammed. Like someone is using your name because it didn't feel like, you know, everything we do is so high touch. Everything we do is so considered in this space because the way I see it is like, we're in business together, like us and these influencers, like it's a very symbiotic relationship. And so I never want it, you know, everybody who works in our marketing, they know that like, it's, it should always feel like we have their back. We are like, whether they're work, you know, whether we have a paid relationship or whether they just have a question about what's the best stroller, like we'll have that interaction with them. Uh, even though it is a business relationship, it's, it's deeper. And I think that's like the why for us is like, they also can feel really good about introducing their customers. I'm sure every brand says this, but like, I do believe they can feel really good about recommending us. Like the product does have legs. Yeah. And the biggest takeaway here too, is like, you know, do the things that don't scale, do your, your biggest, you, you might be able to buy your way into traffic, into views, into followers, but your competitors that are like super established corporations or something, they cannot buy their way into building that sort of alignment and relationship one-on-one -on -one with each one of those individuals. So I love that. Yeah. And Courtney, the, the other thing as we wrap up here, the other thing that, um, really stands out about what you guys are doing is, um, you know, like in, like you were saying in your marketing messaging, just being able to be so specific with um, the types of people, those relationships that you're building. And one thing that I was even um, thinking about is like, there's so many cool opportunities as you guys continue to grow about, um, you know, like even gifting and um, the sharing, right? Because like what you're actually giving is if you're, you're able to provide a great experience for one of your uh, your pregnant mothers, like once they give birth and they, they're going to have friends that want to do it, like them sharing uh, the option of your product with other people is going to be, it's going to help, you know, the next person in line. So um, I think there's so many ways to do this business. And I really liked, um, that's what I was going to say. I really liked the idea that there's some businesses that are built on newness and you guys aren't built on newness. You're built on building the best utilitarian sort of product that obviously fits within that cool shape, form factor, brand, et cetera. But knowing that your brand is about, we're here to build the best functional product um, versus we're here to like create the most fashionable pregnancy line. Like those are two totally different. They're very things different. Really yeah. Totally different. And knowing that is so important because if you thought that, you know, if you were all about creating and launching a million different SKUs, it's a totally different sort of business. So I think it is. Know, it totally knowing, is. knowing what your business is about and staying true to that, like clearly you guys have done a great job um, and we're excited to see you guys keep growing. As we wrap up here, where can our listeners connect with you personally? Are you on, you know, like LinkedIn, <laughs> Instagram, Twitter? Where can they connect I am with in, store? I am all those places, but you know, my own personal profile is a little lacking. I tend to be the lady behind the curtain. Um, but if you want to connect with Stork, we're at S-T-O-R-Q on all the social channels and then Stork, S-T-O-R-Q.com uh, online. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.